Okay, so this is a series, a, uh, a series on the mitzvah campaigns. And here we are, we're doing mitzvah tahara samashpacha, the campaign to promote the mitzvah of what we, we translate literally as family purity. Tahara samashpacha means family purity. Um, sometimes we refer to it as the laws of Nida, or sometimes it's referred to as the laws of Mikvah. Um, all of those are terms that are, we use synonyms with Taras Meshpacha, Nida, Mikvah. Um, Taras Meshpacha is probably the most general term for it, collectively. Nida really describes the specific state, the biological uh, state of, uh, that, uh, that a woman enters. Um, the spiritual and biological state, and mikvah is the the pool of immersion that uh, through which uh, a woman or anyone for that matter, but specifically in this context, a woman achieves uh, tahara or ritual purity. So uh, let's begin like this. I was thinking to myself, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? What do, what, what do I mean? Every Jewish person who gets married by a competent Orthodox rabbi and who is prepared according to halacha for marriage is going to get a class, more than a class, a thorough course in slash the laws of Nida, slash laws of Mikvah, before they get married. This is not something that children learn how to practice, or even young adults who are single, because very simply, uh, it is not applicable until a person is married. So, here we are, we're giving this class, this is open to the public, this is open to everyone. Um, this is going to go online and anyone can watch it. And the question is, you know, first of all, you know, propriety, is this, uh, is this something we want to be talking about? And the answer is, absolutely, this is something that we want to be talking about. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without question. And I will tell you how I know that. I will tell you where I take my lead from. There is a magazine, a children's magazine, called Mashiach Times. Mashiach Times is for Tzivas Hashem, which is the name of an organization. In fact, it's the world's largest Jewish youth club. And the Mashiach Times is a magazine that uh, serves the constituents, the children who are members of this group, Tzivas Hashem. Now, I actually heard this story directly from the editor of Mashiach Times, Rabbi David Shalom Pape. May he be well. And he told me like this. They wanted to do an issue 
about the ten mitzvahim, about the, the mitzvah campaigns, similar to what you know we've been doing uh, this year. And uh, as uh, Robertson uh, Wallowick said before we began, that this entire series of classes is in honor of Dina Leia Rosenzweig, Allah Shalom, and all of the mitzvahs that will come from this, these classes is in her merit. So, um, similar to the way we've been promoting these campaigns, the Mashiach Times magazine wanted to do a, an issue promoting these, uh, these campaigns. The problem is that it's a children's magazine. So Rabbi Pape instructed the illustrator, and I'm not sure who exactly was the illustrator of this particular cover. Um, for some reason, I think it was Dave Berg of Mad Magazine. I believe it was, actually. Um, or maybe it was Al Jaffe. I think it actually was Al Jaffe, and I'll tell you why. Because I think the cover had the character called Der Spy. <laughs> There's a character called Der Spy. And, um, and he's an Al, Al Jaffe is also one of the uh, Mad Magazine uh, artists. It's interesting. That's a whole other story. How did the uh, Mad Magazine uh, staff come to write for, uh, to, or illustrate and write for uh, Mashiach Times? But at any rate, so the cover of the magazine, and this was in 1985. This was the Shvat issue. Interesting. This month is Shvat coming up. Uh, well, actually, no, tonight became Shvat. Um, wow. Yeah. Tonight is Shvat. So the Shvat, <laughs> that's wild. So the Shvat issue of Tuf Shin Mem He. That means uh, 1985, winter of 85. They had a cover, and on the cover it had um, the Shpai, this character, and he was planting trees. And the Yetzirah, who's the villain in this comic strip, the Yitzhahara is the villain in real life, too. That's the, the evil inclination. It was trying to stop them. And they're planting trees. And each of the trees... Oh, and why are they trees? Because Shvat, the Hebrew month of Shvat, is associated with the 15th of Shvat. What many people refer to as Tu Bishvat. Tu Bishvat doesn't mean the number 2. Like in English, 2 is uh, Tesvav, which is 9 plus 6, which is 15. Don't ask why. That's a discussion for another time. But at any rate, Chamisha uh, Asa the 15th day of Shvat, Tu B'Shvat, New Year for Trees. So for the Shvat issue of uh, Mashiach Times, they had this illustration of the, uh, this character, the Shvai, and the planting different trees. And each tree had a Mivza on it. it. had one of the different Mivzoyim. So, tefillin, Shabbos candles, mezuzah, Torah study, tzedakah, all of the, the, the campaigns. But um, Rabbi Pape didn't want to put Taras Mishpacha because it's a children's magazine. So he felt it was, you know, like inappropriate. So he wanted to figure out, the, you know, how to substitute with something else. So he was thinking, well, you know what's important? The Rebbe had said a sicha. Um, to children, where the Rebbe spoke about the importance of telling the truth. 
It's an interesting sicha where the Rebbe is describing how a child uh, comes downstairs and he sees his children or his, his siblings are, are uh, the other children, his siblings are eating uh, this cake and he wants a piece of cake, but he didn't wash his hands yet. And, uh, you know, he's tempted to lie. And it's a very interesting sicha where the Rebbe really gets into the psychology of a child. And then it was the, the point of the sicha of the talk is about the importance of telling the truth. So Rabbi Pape decided since the Rebbe had spoken about the importance of telling the truth, so he could sort of include that as a substitute mitzvah campaign. It, telling the truth was not one of the mitzvah campaigns. But Rabbi Pape wanted to take out Tadus HaMeshpach, family purity, because he felt it was inappropriate for children. So you take that out, you got to put something in. So he put in telling the truth. So you see the cover has all the different uh, trees marked with the different mitzvah campaigns, except for the, the, the one that should be Tadus HaMeshpach, it says uh, telling the truth. Well, they used to always hand in the cover of the magazine to the Rebbe for review before they would go to print. Amazing thing. The Rebbe, with all of his responsibilities, would uh, look through this children's magazine. Just that itself is wild. But they, they handed in the, the magazine before they went to print, and they got one note back <laughs> that Rebbe wrote. Rebbe wrote it in Hebrew. But uh, the Rebbe wrote, one of the Mivtsayim is missing. And then you put in one that's not, that doesn't belong. So uh, Rabbi Pape gets this answer, and it was clear to him that Rebbe wants that when you teach the ten mitzvah campaigns, even to small children, you tell them what the campaigns are even if it's small children. So I'm taking my lesson, and so they, they corrected it. They corrected the, the, um, the cover, and it came out with Taras uh, Mishpacha, family purity on it. So I'm taking my lesson from that story, and uh, it clearly means that we are supposed to talk about this with all types of audiences. And obviously, uh, we should do so tastefully. We are I think somewhat restricted. I mean, we're not going to get into the technical observance of the mitzvah. That would uh, not really be possible. That's something that people are taught as preparation for marriage. But to talk about the general history of the campaign and then about the mitzvah itself, I think uh, not only is uh, permissible, but an incredibly important uh, topic to promote maybe in a certain way, even more than any of the other topics that we've, we've discussed. And maybe by the end of uh, tonight's class, you'll understand why I say that. So, uh, maybe let's, let's start like this. Let's start with the origins of the mitzvah that we said is called Taras Mishpacha, or Nida, or Mikvah. Where does it come from? It is a biblical mitzvah. It's, a bibli it's, a bibli it's one of the 613 commandments. And uh, it is a, a mitzvah that governs the private life of a Jewish husband and wife. And 
it is regarded as so important, so essential, that a Jewish community that does not have a mikvah is not considered a community. You could say, well, there's a, you know, we drive and go to the mikvah, you know, in the next town over. Okay, fine. So wherever you're living, that's not called a Jewish community. You're living outside of the community. You could have thousands of Jews living somewhere, but if they don't have a mikvah, it's not called a Jewish community. Now you're going to say there are other things also. You know, if you don't have a shul, it's not called a Jewish community. That's true. But let me explain to you why a mikvah is even greater than a shul. According to halacha, you're not allowed to sell a shul. Like, let's say, you, your community needs funds. They, they, they want money. They want to liquidate assets. So they, they have a nice piece of property. They, they, so they sell their shul so they can get some money. You're not allowed to do that. However, when it comes to a mikvah, you're allowed to sell the shul. You're allowed to sell the Sifre Torah, Torah scrolls, in order to have the funds to build the mikvah. So we see here that a priority is given to the mikvah beyond any other aspect of Jewish life, which is, I think, um, a reminder that the core of Jewish life is only supported in the synagogue. The core of Jewish life really takes place in each and every Jewish home. And the center of the home is the husband-wife relationship. And the center of the husband-wife relationship is their intimate life, which is made holy through the practice of the laws of mikvah. So it's, it's no great wonder that having a mikvah would take such precedence even over other aspects of Jewish communal life. Uh, let me put it to you in a historical perspective. Maybe this will help bring it out maybe even more clearly. Anyone who's been to Israel, who took a trip, you know, uh, uh, a guided tour, almost everybody has been to Masada, right? That's one of the, the places all the tourists always, always visit. And uh, one of the things you see up there, up on Masada, up on that mountain, where those uh, Jews were living, uh, they were resisting the, 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 the Roman occupation, and they, they went up to Masada. And uh, you see, there's, there, there are mikvahs there. There are mikvahs on Masada. Now, how long was the siege in Masada? It was half a year. How long did the Jews live up on Masada? You know, and how long did they plan to live on Masada? It wasn't like they were setting up a permanent community. It was a, they were fleeing. They were fleeing. So you're talking about Jews who are living in what was a very temporary situation. And on top of that, they had incredible, literal life and death uh, 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 threats that they were facing. And with all of that, you see that Jews built mikvahs. Like, that was considered such a basic part 
of the rhythm of Jewish life that even if you're hiding out uh, as a band uh, of resistance and, and, and you're fleeing for your very lives, uh, you, you still wouldn't think to spend any amount of time somewhere without a mikvah. And it just, it, 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 it's absolutely uh, astounding when, when you think about it, that Jews in that type of situation felt that mikvah was that important. And of course, there are many, many, many stories through the ages where Jews who were living under terrible oppression and had no stability in their lives, and everything they did was at, you know, was, 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 was only with great peril, and they always preserved this mitzvah of mikvah. In fact, even when the persecution was specifically against the observance of mikvah itself, they were building and keeping and using mikvahs. I mean, we know that, you know, the, the, the story of Lubavitch in the Soviet Union, the times of, 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 of communist Russia, is characterized by, you know, great uh, resistance. And one of the, maybe, perhaps even the primary form of resistance was that the previous Lubavitch Rebbe had a network. Okay, there were the underground chadarim, uh, the, the schools for, 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 for Torah study. But one of the, the, the primary, if not the primary uh, services for which people literally risked and not risked, gave up their lives for was to maintain mikvahs and, and, and to, through secret networks, allow Jewish women to know where the mikvah was and where a new one had opened. When the KGB closed one in one location, they opened one in another location. It wasn't child's play. When they closed up a, a mikvah in one location, it was very often that whoever they found there was sent to Siberia to build a mikvah, to have a mikvah in your home was... Uh, Capital offense. And, and yet, mikvah was considered to be so important, so cherished, so central, that uh, even when there was, like I said, literal risk of life and limb, that was something that Jews wouldn't live without. So we, we get, a, we get a, a glimpse, I think, a taste of an appreciation of how powerful how important that, that mitzvah is. Um, let's talk a little bit about the history or the background of the Rebbe's campaign. We're speaking about this uh, in the context of the 10 mitzvahim, the 10 mitzvah campaigns. So let, let's talk about that briefly. Um, the first of the Ten Mitzvahim, we've said this before in other classes in this series, but it's, uh, it's worth repeating, so I'll just repeat it again very briefly, a little historical sketch here. Uh, 1967, on the eve of the Six-Day six War, the Rebbe started the Tefillin campaign. And that, that, for a while, that was the only campaign. So it wasn't under the banner of Mitzvahim, it was just a thing. That was the thing. And then... Uh, Seven years later, in fact, I think we spoke about last week that 
the, the Tefillin campaign started on the eve of the Six-Day War, and a, the first group of other campaigns started after the Yom Kippur War, like the year following the Yom Kippur War. So it's interesting that the, these campaigns were sort of tied in with major events in, in, in Jewish uh, history that were going on at the time. So in 1974, I think Yom Kippur War was 73, so the next year, 74, they, uh, there was the, the, the institution of Mivta uh, Mezuzah, Tzedakah, Baismali Svarim, that's what we did, I think, last time, and Nashik, right? So in, in plain English, uh, Mezuzah, how do you say Mezuzah in English? <laughs> mezuzah. Uh, charity, a uh, house full of Torah books, and uh, Shabbos candles. So that those were instituted in 1974. Then in the following year, Toshin Lamed Hay, which is 1975, the Rebbe instituted and Kashrus. So family purity, which is the mitzvah we're speaking about tonight, along with uh, a campaign to promote the uh, the the uh, keeping of kosher laws, and there, by the way, there's a connection between Taras Mishpacha and Kashrus, very strong connection. Uh, they are both mitzvahs that affect men and women, but women are primarily responsible for keeping them. Um, obviously, men and women are bound by these laws equally, but the practical fact of the matter is who's the one who typically in the Jewish home oversees and makes sure that these laws are adhered adhered to properly is the mainstay of the Jewish home, the the Jewish woman. So she is the one who oversees both of those mitzvahs. Um, So during that period of time, 1975, when the Rebbe came out with this, uh, this campaign, there were many talks, many public addresses where the Rebbe spoke about Taras HaMishbacha. And um, one of the things that Rebbe spoke about was what we mentioned earlier, the Mesiris Nefesh, the, the great sacrifice that uh, Lubavitch had in Russia to build mikvahs when it was very dangerous to do so. And uh, that I was spoke about now, you know, living in a free society, nothing stopping us, and uh, we have to build. We have to build mikvahs. That I was speaking about building mikvahs, and uh, and not to delay, not to delay, because every single couple. Who, who has the benefit of a mikvah when they conceive. This is, this is such a powerful light. I'm going to speak about that in, in, in a moment, but such a powerful light in the world. And it's not to be delayed. It's not to be put off. It, it's. I'm, I'm I'm guarding the way that I'm speaking because I I don't want to make it sound like 
see, I'm, I'm sort of torn here because on one hand, I don't want anyone to be, to take it in the wrong way. If I say, I don't want to say that it's something that you can, you have one chance to do it right. Because people will say, well, 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 I didn't know, or I, I made a mistake and I didn't do it right. And now, you know, my child is born. So on the, but on the other hand, I don't want to say, oh, it's not a big deal. So <laughs> what am I supposed to say? What I'll tell you is this. There, of course, this is a question that people ask. Now I'm taking a, a parenthetical uh, detour right now because I feel like it just important to, to address. But there, of course, there are many people who have asked this question. Well, what do you do when you realize after your children are born? So in that case, what the Rebbe would recommend is that you should start keeping those laws now. You should start keeping those laws now. And uh, teshuva is very, very powerful. Teshuva can have a transformative effect. So I, I, I would say that if you're still having children, um, obviously it's, it's a no-brainer to observe the laws of mikvah and to observe them uh, meticulously and to take a refresher course, even if you've already learned it. Um, and if you haven't learned it, learn it for the first time. But even if you're, you're not having children anymore, but it, it would be valuable at least uh, one time to have that experience. And what the heck, you know, at the very least, you could write it off as a Jewish cultural experience, right? But uh, yeah, it has a powerful effect, even if it's even if it's after the fact. At any rate, uh, let me go back to where I diverted from. That I was speaking about how the, the urgency, basically the urgency, and not to delay and not to um, allow a situation to happen where you know basically uh, every every single day um, matters, every hour matters. Uh, and 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 during in, during these talks that I've also spoke about the importance of making the buildings, the actual physical structure and the decor and the design of the of the buildings and where in which the mikvah is housed. The mikvah itself is the actual pool, is the immersion pool. Um, but there, you know, there's a house. I mean, now nowadays we have we have a building. <laughs> in the olden days, you know, sometimes it was. Uh, you know, you just jump in the ocean. But um, we have beautiful houses, so the Rebbe encouraged that they should uh, make these structures as beautiful, as attractive, as pleasant as possible, and that this is all part of beautifying the mitzvah, and it's all part of attracting women to want to observe this mitzvah. In other words, it's not a mitzvah that that a woman should have to feel. Of course, women have had sacrifice to keep this mitzvah, but it's not one that they should have to feel that they're sacrificing. If you can make it so nice that it feels almost like indulgent, if it feels like a spa, then, then we should try to do so. Um, so, so. Just so that it'll be uh, done more. And, and in fact, the Rebbe even like, acknowledges this in the Sikhas, Rebbe says there, and maybe you'll argue that even if it's not such an attractive experience, she's still obligated. It's still a mitzvah. 
right? It's still a mitzvah, and it really shouldn't bother her. Whether it's nice, whether it's not nice, what are you talking It's a mitzvah, so who cares if the building is, is pretty or not? The Rebbe said, that's not what you should be thinking. That's not a germane argument. The fact of the matter is that if the building is nice, and the experience is nice, and the attendant is nice, and everything is done in a very luxurious way, the fact of the matter is it will promote more women using mikvah more often, which has this incredibly powerful effect on the, the spiritual uh, advantages that they give to their children that are conceived from, from, from that, from that uh, going to the mikvah. So, uh, you know, you can, you can argue all you want that it's not so important. It, it is important. It is important. It's, and it may be more important than anything, like we were saying before. Um, let, let's talk a little bit. Oh, I mentioned, let me talk about this. I mentioned that Mikvah provides an advantage to the to the children, spiritual advantage to the children who are born, who are conceived uh, in a state of, of spiritual purity. So l- let me just talk about that a little bit. Um, when a soul comes down to a body, look, all souls are holier than angels. What, what, I mean, what's greater, a soul or an angel? Soul, no question. But a soul has to come down to a body. And when it comes down to a body, there's certain wear and tear that it experiences as it comes down from heaven, actually heavens, plural, and eventually comes into this world. You know, just like after a person passes, they leave the body and they go to heaven. So before they were born, they were in heaven, they left heaven, and they came to a body. And embodiment can uh, put a damper on your spirituality, <laughs> to say the least, right? And, and what happens is um, the body can sort of buffer out, filter out the soul's spiritual sensitivity. And what really is going to determine, not the soul, the soul is, is pristine. But the interface that the soul is going to have here in this world, the, the filter through which the soul is going, going to experience things while in a body, that all, that's all determined by the circumstances of the conception of the body that the soul is going to inhabit when it comes down. And there's nothing more conducive to the, the situation of the body being a good vessel for the soul, there's nothing more conducive than, uh, than being conceived in ritual purity, which is the result of immersing in the mikvah. And what this does is allows the soul to shine through. So, of course, there are lofty souls, beautiful, pure souls, that were born without the advantage of their parents going to mikvah. You know, that's... that's that's the fact. But with mikvah, it's giving that soul the ability to have it a little bit easier in life. In other words, you know, let me put it like this. Your child's intelligence 
is not something that you can cause. You know, you, you don't make, you don't get to pick how smart your child is. But you can choose what schools to send your child to, right? And, and Jewish parents do this all the time. We make great sacrifices to send our kids to the right schools so that our child should have every advantage in life, right? Okay. So, same thing. You don't choose how smart your kid is, but you choose what schools to, give them to send them to or send her to to give them every advantage in life. The same thing. That their, their, their inner spirituality isn't determined by anything you did or didn't do. That, that, that's, that, that's beyond your ability to help or hurt. But the circumstances that that soul is going to come into, yeah, of course, you do have an influence. And there's nothing more influential that you as a parent can do than allowing your child the benefit of being, being conceived while uh, the, the, the mother is in a state of ritual purity that was, uh, was, was brought about through immersion in a kosher mikvah. So, in that sense, we see that the mikvah is a, is a mitzvah that's more powerful than any other. I'll tell you why. There's a saying... Actually, it's from King Solomon's sayings. You know, he has Proverbs, Mishle. Ner mitzvah He says that uh, a mitzvah is a candle, and Torah is light. So a mitzvah is a candle. Every time you do a mitzvah, you're lighting a candle. Not just lighting Shabbos candles, candles, which is literally a candle, but you put on tefillin, you're lighting a candle, right? You eat kosher, you're lighting a candle. You give tzedakah, you're, you're, you're lighting a candle. Uh, you shake lulav on sukkis. You hear the shayfer on, on Rosh Hashanah. These, these are all lighting a candle, so to speak. And every candle brings light into the world. But we all know that no matter how bright a candle is, or how many candles you light in a room, they can never compare to the intensity of the sunlight when it comes streaming into the room through a window. You can't compare the two. You could light thousands of candles in the room, but it's nothing compared to just opening up the window and let the sun shine through, and it's just incomparably brighter. Well, all mitzvahs are like candles, except for one. All mitzvahs are like candles, but mikvah is like letting in the sunshine through the window. Because what is mikvah? Mikvah is providing the circumstances which allow the purity and the power of a soul to come into the world with no obstruction. So that it can come into a body and shine. And the light from the soul. The soul is like it says in Tanya. It's a piece of God. So a mitzvah is a candle. It's a nice light. But the light that emits from an unobstructed soul. When a soul is born into a body with the benefit of purity. That's like the sun shining through the window. So in that sense. The, the mitzvah that we do that makes the most light is this, this mitzvah.
like the difference between lighting a candle and opening up the window so that the sun can shine through. Um, maybe I'll just very briefly speak about the observance of the mitzvah. I, as I said earlier, I don't want to get into it uh, in detail, and, and I can't. For obvious reasons, I can't. But maybe we'll just close up by just speaking about it very uh, in very general terms. Um, part of marriage, I'm not saying all of marriage, but a part of it is love. A husband and wife are meant to love each other. And there are different kinds of love. You think there's one kind of love. <laughs> it's like, you know, what do you want for dessert? Ice cream. What flavor ice cream? Oh, whatever, ice cream. <laughs> then you don't know ice cream. If you don't know how many flavors of ice cream there are, you don't understand ice cream. Go ask the poets. The poets know there are many, type, many types of love. But let's talk about right now the difference between a husband and wife, love, and other kinds of love like, for instance, a brother and sister. A brother and sister have a love that is constant. In fact, their love began before they even really understood what love was because they grew up with each other and they're comfortable with each other. And even when they fight, they still love each other because that love is just this baseline, uh, you know, it's just normal. It's like the air that you breathe. And in that sense, it's also very neutral, meaning it's not wow. It's not like it hits you like a ton of bricks. No, it's constant, it's steady, it's normal. It's so normal you don't even notice it, right? Like an old pair of shoes. A brother and sister's love for each other is like that old pair of shoes. You don't want to throw it away because when you put on that old pair of shoes, it feels like you're not even wearing shoes. It's so comfortable, it's so just normal, right? Okay. That's beautiful. It is beautiful. But that is not the kind of love that a husband and wife are supposed to have for each other. A husband and wife's love for each other should not be like that awesomely comfortable pair of old shoes. No. The love a husband and wife had, have for each other should be, wow, it's hitting me like a ton of bricks. Now you're going to say that's infatuation. That happens at the beginning of a relationship. And then afterwards, the honeymoon is over and you get used to each other. God forbid. God forbid. Why should that happen? If a husband and wife love becomes like a brother-sister love, that is not good for a marriage, which means by extension it is not good for a Jewish family or anybody living under that roof, which by extension means it's not good for the Jewish community, which by extension means it's not good for the world. When a husband and wife become blasé, even in a good way, not in a contemptuous way, no, in a very sweet way, that is, um, doesn't bode well for the entire world.
has negative re repercussions on all of reality. The core of the Jewish home is the intimate life of husband and wife. And a husband and wife's love have to be, has to be passionate, has to be exciting, has to be wow. This is not my sister that I grew up with and I knew before I even knew how to speak, right? This is someone I didn't know. I had my own life. I discovered her. I discovered her the first time I laid eyes on you, right? That's why we speak about husband and wife romance in that way, because the novelty of it is it. It's all about novelty. A brother and sister love is the opposite of novelty, which is beautiful in its own way. Husband and wife love is all about novelty. Well, how do you keep novelty when you're married for a year, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years? Where's the novelty? So our creator did an, an, an amazing thing. He built into us a rhythm of approach, disengagement, reunion. It's part of the biological cycle. I mean, biology itself is telling us this spiritual truth. That there's a time for backing away. You know, people say, I need my space. It's true. You do need your space. Why? Because... A husband and wife love has to be about reapproaching, reunion, not constant union. If it's constant, it becomes like a brother and sister. So we have built into our system this, this rhythm, this pattern, which always ensures that there will be, like I said, approach, disengagement, reunion. And then the love between husband and wife is always kept new as it is intended to be and, and and all we have to do is respect the cycle of biology which is embedded in nature and then take our guidance from torah law which, which tells us how to respect this this natural cycle and not that we do mitzvahs because of how it benefits us no I mean, we don't do mitzvahs because it benefits us we do mitzvahs because Hashem said to however, this one's such a no-brainer this mitzvah so clearly benefits us. At any rate, I want to encourage everybody um, to do what you can for this mitzvah, whether it is to be involved in the building of a mikvah, you know, to donate to a mikvah, um, to educate others or encourage others, to practice the laws of mikvah, or to take a refresher course in the laws of mikvah, or if you haven't observed the mitzvah before, to look into it and, and to see about at least maybe one time at least to have that experience. And uh, to remember that this isn't, uh, this isn't like any other mitzvah. This is the core. This is the essence. This is the epicenter of Jewish life. And when the core is strong, everything else is strong. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, blessings to you all. And again, I want to remind you that this class, as well as all of the classes in this series, is uh, in honor of Dinalea Rosenzweig, Shalom. 
May this class and all the mitzvahs that come from it be in her merit.